If you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of First Chronicles, First Chronicles, way back in the Old Testament, in chapter 15, First Chronicles 15. And if you find that quickly, you can also turn to Second Samuel uh, 6. We'll be there in a little bit. So I said last week, for those of you who are here, that there were two sides to the coin of worship, one on each side. On the one hand, we have law and order, and on the other hand, we have liberty and joy. And this week, we're going to continue looking at the recovery of the Ark of the Covenant and to the people of God and how they responded to that in worship. Last week, we saw that God struck down Uzzah because he did not follow the law about how to carry the Ark. And this showed us that God really does care about how we worship, our our emotions that we go through in worship and our heart both matter. And we found that we worship according to the word of God, not our whims. That was emphatically seen from the text. But this week, we're going to keep reading the text and see what this actually means for David and his worship procession. He was very clear that they worship according to the rule. I said that a couple times, according to the word of God. So we're going to pick up this week on the practical implications of David's instruction of how they're going to worship this time. Are we going to see that he's paralyzed by this order, by this law, or something else? Well, what we're going to find is that David is surprisingly flexible in his worship, even though he advocates for worship according to the rules. So let's see how that worship service played out a little bit. Again, the text is 1 Chronicles 15. We're going to look at verses 25 through 29. Church, these are the words of God. And as such, let's give attention to them. It says, So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed Edom with rejoicing. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, with sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. And as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating. And she despised him in her heart. The word of God for his People, let's pray. Father, once again, we come to your holy and inspired word. And we ask that the same Holy Spirit that breathed those words out for us would now breathe on us once again, that we might see that it's living, it's active, even though it's old in the Old Testament, it is still for us today, that it's inspired for us. So we pray that you would inspire us by your word this morning. That you would enliven us, that you would help us to confront Jesus in the text, to see how he is speaking to each and every one of our hearts this morning as we seek to worship you in in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray for my words, the things that I say. If anything is not of your will and according to the rule of scripture, I pray that it would go in one ear and right out the other. That we would hear from you this morning, not just what I have to say, but what your word says to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, just as last week's 
uh, text was a bit shocking. So also, it's a bit surprising that three months after David experienced that traumatic event in worship, and if you weren't here and you don't know the story, Uzzah reached out and touched the Ark of uh, God when it went to sl- when it slipped, and God killed him. So that was shocking last week, and we saw that. Now, yet somehow, David has the audacity to dance before the God that slayed his friend. It's surprising. There's so much going on under the surface of this text, but the main thing that I'd like to do today is to contrast David's dancing with Michael's despising. What these two people represent is two hearts of worship. We see on the one hand a true heart of worship, and on the other a false heart. Heart of worship. So what we're going to do is look at those two people as they represent good and bad examples of worship. But before we get to uh, to that, we're going to have to see that there's a little bit of complexity, a little bit of uh, complexity going on in this text, marital complexity, and just also uh, the, the context of where David finds himself and Michael finds herself. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Second Samuel six, Second Samuel six, verse twenty through twenty three. 2 Samuel 6, 20-23. This passage starts to fill in the gaps about why Michael despised David's dancing. This is the same account, just in a different book of the Bible. 2 Samuel 6, 20-23 says this. This is right after David has brought the ark. And it says, And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel has honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And catch this, verse 23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Hmm. Now, before you assume you know what's going on in this passage, I'm actually going to um, I'm going to challenge kind of a folk understanding of this passage. And that is that David actually danced naked. Have you heard that before? Many of you people might even think that this morning. Because Michael said that David uncovered himself before the eyes of the female servants, it's been widely assumed that David actually danced naked and that Michael's problem here was just a, a jealousy problem. She was jealous that David would expose himself in such a lewd and promiscuous way. And that's the way that many people have read this text. And what I want to do this morning is actually kind of push up against that. And I think that that was not the issue here. And let me explain what I do believe the issue was that was going on. Now, first of all, the text explicitly says that David was clothed, does it not? If you look at 2 Samuel 6.14, look back just a little bit, 2 Samuel 6.14, what does it say? And David danced before the Lord. Okay, so David's dancing. Is he naked? With all his might, it says, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Okay, so he's wearing something, says that. And then in 1 Chronicles, if you still have your bookmark or your finger there, 1 Chronicles 15.27 says this. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenaniah, the leader of the music and the singers. So 
The text tells us not only did he have a linen robe, there's one layer, but also he's wearing a linen ephod. He's got two layers of clothes on. And it says, as were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, the singers and Chenaniah. So if David's naked, so is the whole procession. All of those people are naked if that's the, the right reading of the way to read this. But I don't believe that's what's going on. I, I believe that Michael's clothes, or I believe that David's clothed, first of all. Now, also, what is Michael talking about when she says that he's uncovered? Right? So, what does that mean if he's not actually naked? And here's uh, where all this starts to make sense regarding worship, right? That's what we're talking about, worship this morning. Now, think of this. Consider these facts and the complexity that we have here in this text. Michael, the Wife of David, who was talking about there, Michael is the daughter of Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel, which means that she grew up in a royal household. Her daddy was a king. And if anyone knows what is befitting of a king, who is it? It's probably Michael. Michael knows what a king is supposed to do and how a king is supposed to act. So the uncovering that Michael is referring to is probably an unrobing from the royal kings to the priestly robes. Because who also is a king here? David. David is a king. So David's actions in the eyes of Michael were not befitting of a king. She sees this isn't appropriate. Why are you acting like that? Dad would have never done that. That's kind of her, her thinking here. Which leads me to my last point regarding the vulgarity of the scene. When Michael says that David did this as one of the vulgar fellows, I quote, uh, some of your translations, the King James might have said, vain fellows. And a, a literal, a very, very literal reading of that in the Hebrew would have said empty. It's empty. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. But, but that's what it says, as one of the vulgar fellows. And what I want you to get in your mind is think of a queen, because that's what she was, and what a queen might mean if she said something like this. If a queen says something like this, you get the image of a royal queen watching a bunch of peasants kind of dancing around. She's watching from her window. They're dancing around. You would kind of see her kind of looking at them. They're acting like a bunch of animals, right? She's, she's up there in her ivory tower. She's looking down. She's despising what they're doing. And I believe that vulgar is actually a good translation here. Let me tell you why. Um, this word vulgar I think is really good. Don't think sexually lewd like the words come to mean. Like when you think vulgar, some of you probably start to think of it in that kind of sense. But don't think of it like that. Think of the actual meaning of the, the old meaning of the word vulgar. Think common, right? You know the, the Latin Vulgate text of Scripture. Do, do you know what that is? Where one of the earliest translations where uh, the scholars decided to take the translation of the Bible from the scholarly way of Hebrew and Greek. Most people couldn't read that. They took it and they put it in the vulgar translation, the Latin Vulgate, so the commoner could read it. So the, the everyday Joe could read the Bible. Think of it, think vulgar in that kind of sense. And even Oxford Dictionary uh, defines vulgar as lacking sophistication or good taste, unrefined, Right? It'd be kind of like if our president uh, happened to show up at our church this morning and he sat down in the, the confession of sin. He got down on his knees and maybe he raised his hands up and he was looking very pious and he's, he's showing really outward expression of worship. You might have if, – if there was a news anchor that show up and they reported on that, you might hear something like this from a newscast uh, that would say, oh, how the president honored himself today, right? putting on his church clothes, taking off his presidential uh, garments, acting like one of those shameless Christians do. He's just joining the commoners, right? You can kind of hear it, right? It's that kind of thing. So, so to sum up my argument, Michael isn't so much jealous of David. She's embarrassed of David 
in the sight of the handmaids, right? Her peers, the people who she hangs around, these women, she's embarrassed for David. She isn't worried about David being promiscuous. She's worried about David looking like a fool and she being married to a fool that looks like an indecent commoner like the rest of the procession, right? He's unrobed as king and he robed up as priest and Michael despises this. She doesn't like this outward show of worship. She wants him to be dignified. She wants him to look proper. So, with this in view, let's go back. Let's reevaluate the scene and look at the contrast between the heart of worship of David and the heart of worship for Michael, right? Now you can start to see how these two people represent two kinds of hearts of worship. And let's start first with looking at the false heart of worship. And to do, to do that, to see the full picture, we really need to address the abuses of worship that we have seen um, in the text last week. And I know some of you weren't here, but last week's scenes showed us something about the abuses of worship as well. Now, last week we kind of saw the overly flippant view of worship, and we might tag this as emotionalism. Now, we're going to look at that, that view, the emotionalism or the overly flippant, but we're also going to look at the overly rigid in just a moment. But first, let's look back to last week at the overly flippant view, and that's David in his first worship procession. That's what it looks like. Remember, he, he rushed in. He was fueled on emotions. He was all excited. He didn't prepare according to the word of God. He confessed that. He made that clear. He repented of it later. And he assumed that God would accept his worship based upon what? Based upon his own defined heart. He said, I'm worshiping with all my might. And God said, but are you? Right? He worshiped with all his might, and it cost him someone else's life. Those had died because of that. Because they didn't worship according to the rule. Even though David would have said, yep, I'm doing it right. And what happened after God killed Uzzah? David was angry. David was angry with God. And we might even say that David despised God to kind of connect, connect it to our text today, right? He, he was very upset. God's judgment against his mo- emotional expression wasn't uh, welcomed in David's eyes. I don't like you judging me, God. I'm angry with the way that you just called me out. So overly flippant worship abuses God's word by ignoring the clear warnings and rules. David should have known beforehand, if he had been familiarized with this law, he should have known that this was out of line, and he never should have done it. And it's often, overly flippant worship is often angered or aggravated by orderly worship. They don't want order. And when order comes, they're a little bit stifled by it. Who's, you're going to rain on my parade? I'll worship how I want to worship, right? That's the overly flippant view. And the primary abuse, what we saw last week, is rooted in pride. This is pride being exposed. And pride is fueled by emotions and feelings, not reality. Pride is actually out of touch with reality. It it has this false view that is an inflated self of who we really are. We, We think we're awesome when we start to float off the ground just a little bit. And what humility does is humility comes in and pops that bubble and grounds us really quickly. It shows us that we are not who we actually thought we are. We've been humiliated and we're brought down to the hard ground of reality. So overly flippant worship tends towards emotionalism because it says this. It says, I feel that God will accept this worship. I feel that God will accept this worship. But we should be able to say, I know that God will accept this worship. Why? Because he's told me how to do it. I'm just following according to the rule. That's the difference in true and false worship. Now, let's look at the overly rigid side. This is what I kind of want to focus on this week, the the intellectualism. And and we as Presbyterians, this is usually where we fall, just just so you know. We're usually not too rowdy. We're usually too stuffy. 
right? So overly rigid worship looks like Michael at David's second worship service, right? You can kind of see it now. Presbyterians sometimes feel like they have a little chip on their shoulder. We, we do things right. Have you seen our liturgy? It's all together. <laughs> we, we've got it all put together. And, and you'll see that uh, Michael, she distances herself from the worshipers as she kind of stands back from the window, right? She's watching all this happen. And you get the image of a high horse person watching the commoners trifle around with their foolish folk religion while she stands back all dignified. Why would you act like them? She despised the emotional expression of David in his dance. And what she really wanted was a stoic king, didn't she? She wanted a dignified face. We don't show emotions around here. Yeah, you might be really happy, but you need to look a little bit scowled, don't you? Right? <laughs> if you're a real worshiper, you need to look like you're a little bit angry. right? Because that, that means you're taking God seriously. Is that what that means? So she believes that expressing... Uh, expressing emotions forfeits David's honor. That's why she's sarcastic about it. Look how he's dignified himself today. right? She's making a jab because David has just expressed himself. So that's why she says how the king of Israel has honored himself today. Pure sarcasm, by the way. If you're looking for sarcasm in the Bible, that's where it is. People <laughs> express it sometimes. Now, there's a common thread that runs through both of these, the overly flippant uh, and uh, the, the, the uh, rigid person. So both emotionalism and intellectualism are both too concerned with other people's worship. Right? The focus isn't on the object of worship as much as it should be. Right? They're thinking too much about themselves or too much of, about someone else. The emotionalist is offended at structured worship. Right? They're upset about it. The intellectualist is offended at loose worship of other people. And both miss the focus of worship, which is God, the object, Jesus. And our worship should always be the object. You shouldn't be looking at your neighbor, and you shouldn't even really be looking at yourself. You should be looking at Jesus. And this is why David was quick to say it wasn't before the women servants that he was dancing. It was before God. He wants to make this clear to Michael. You're going to accuse me of dancing before these ladies? I wasn't dancing before anyone but God. That's what David's saying. So another common thread, both emotionalism and intellectualism miss the balance of law and gospel. Let me unpack this a little bit. Emotionalism wants all gospel, no law. Right? This is David angry at God because his law. I can do whatever I want. Grace, all grace, gospel, good news. That's all I want, but don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to order my worship. Don't tell me that. Now, the intellectual, on the other hand, wants all law and no gospel, right? And this is Michael despising David because of his gospel response. I don't care how good the news was. You need to straighten up, right? You need to do things like a king does them. So that's the overly rigid view. And both, another common thread, have the same result. Lifelessness. Lifelessness. Think about those two worship processions. Read 2 Samuel 6.23 with me real quick. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. There's clear correlation there, right? We don't know if David withheld himself from Michael. That could have been it. We don't know if God didn't give her any children. Either way, she remained fruitless, and the text is clear. This is a result of what she has just done. Her wrong heart of worship has rendered her barren. No children, no fruit, lifelessness. Now think about the first worship service. What happened there? They got a little carried away, and someone touched the ark. And what was the result? Lifelessness. Uzzah lost his life of the deal. Death is 
the result of flippant worship, just like rigid worship. And here's the warning to the churches who abuse worship. If you fall into either of these ditches, you are heading to the same path as these two stories. Death, lifelessness. Many of you have heard and hear the, the term dead church. You've heard that before, right? Now, this means all kinds of different things. When someone refers to a church as dead church, it might, depending on who you're talking about, it might just be um, they're not Pentecostal. I, I mean, I've heard, just frankly, just frankly speaking, that's what it means sometimes, is that they, they aren't extra Pentecostal. But more than likely, they're referring to the fact that the church is literally dying out because there's no new birth of believers. Right? That's, that is a dead church. That, that definition is, uh, that exists. There are churches out there. All the members are old and dying because they're not reproducing. Right? They haven't raised up a second generation of believers or a third generation of believers. And they, they're the only ones there. And after they're gone, the doors close. That's a dead church. And a church who abuses worship is on its way to being a dead church. How fitting it is that we find ourselves in this text with this subject this morning after we celebrate 203 years. We need to take this warning seriously because this could be this church. Thank God it's not. But this is what happens to a church when we don't have a true heart of worship. It is the worshipers that keep the church going. It is not because the church is big and awesome and very pretty. It is according to the way that the people worship their God. If God is not the object of worship in that church, it will die. So if you want your church to die after 203 years, the best thing that we can do is get too rowdy, too flippant, and too crazy with our worship, or we can get too stuffy. We can get too rigid, and we can get stuck in our ways and say, we've always done it this way, and we're always going to do it this way. And that leads to death. So a loose and flippant church, actually, just so you know, they're actually going to grow. But hear me out. A loose and flippant church, if we go on that side, they're going to grow, and they're going to go through the motions, and they're going to worship with all their might, just like David did. And what happened? Uzzah got killed, right? Just because it looks like things are going well, just because you see a big crowd, just because it looks like a lot of life doesn't mean it's going to continue being that way. You can fool yourself into thinking that you're truly worshiping, but you actually are just heading very fast towards spiritual death. A big church doesn't necessarily mean a born-again church, right? There might be a lot of people, but there might be almost no life, right? So... If you're wondering if you're falling into either of these ditches, where am I at? I want to ask you some questions that you can ask yourself if you're feeling convicted uh, of one of these things. You can know which side you probably lean more towards. So ask yourself, would I be angered, like David, if God struck one of our church members down for doing something out of line with Scripture that was clearly forbidden in Scriptures, but they did it? And are you mad about that when that happens? If so... You might fall closer to the emotionalism side. How dare God do that? Right? That was David. Or, on the other side, would you be embarrassed or mock one of your church members if they became very expressive in worship? We're Presbyterians. We don't raise our hands. <laughs> right? Right? If so, you might be falling into a high-horsed intellectualism. Right? Watch yourself. There are ditches on both sides. So how do we keep from falling into either of these two ditches? What does a true heart of worship look like? Right? What's, what's the right view? 
Well, instead of contrasting the orderly and reverent posture of David that we saw last week with the free and expressive worship uh, that we have this week, instead of contrasting these two things, why don't we just synthesize them? These are the same person worshiping both times. This is the same David. The same worshiper can experience both. Both order and structure and law and freedom and joy, on the other hand. This is the same worshiper in both of these stories. In other words, the coin of worship has two sides, as I said. It's not either or, it's both and. You have heads all bowed, tails all dance, dancing. Right? You got you got the both sides, right? Some of you didn't get it. What? <laughs> heads bowed, tails dancing. Anyway, let's be a church that responds emotionally to the gospel, but respectfully in law. Right? You can have both of those. Look at the emotional experience of this second worship service. If you turn to uh, the, the first Chronicles passage in uh, chapter 15, verse 25 shows that it's with uh, rejoicing. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of thousands went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the house with rejoicing. So church, we're here celebrating the presence of God in this house for 203 years. I want to see some rejoicing this morning. I want to see some excitement of what God is doing in this house. So verse 25, it shows with rejoicing. Verse 28, they're shouting to the sound of music. And then it makes the point to say that it's with loud music. It's with loud music in the Presbyterian. It says it's with loud music and with dancing. David ends up commanding. We read some of those Psalms where David's commanding dance to the Lord. Okay, right. I want to be the kind of church that that, uh, the the people, the neighbors are despising us in the windows. They're looking out the windows and I want them to see us in this. They are again. Look how fun they're having. Look at that time. We can either have that or they could see, man, I want that. I want to be a church that's like that. I don't want people to drive past this church and wonder if we're having services or not. Right? I want to be the church that is excited about Jesus, excited about what he's doing, and continuing to be year after year after year, allowing the Spirit of God to move among us and to allow him to move us to expressive worship. Where we're showing, I love Jesus. I will raise my hands. I will shout to the Lord. I will sing a new song. That's the kind of church that I want, a party church, where we're going to celebrate in a little bit, where we're going to thank God what he has done. So David can dance without fear because he's prepared, right? We know what God's word says. He's reflected. He sat and thought about it. And he knows the law of God. So church, I want you to ask yourself this morning, how can you express your joy to God because he saved you? How can you do that? That's a, that's a genuine question. How can you do it to where you express yourself to God, but you do it respectfully too, right? Where you're both sides of this coin. Now, David, he spent three months before he had the courage to try this worship service again. And I mean, so would probably you with your friend being killed and you're getting ready to worship the guy that just killed your friend. So it's going to take maybe some time thought about how you think about this. But do you know what motivated David to, to finally take that step and to move into where he's going to worship God after three months? He noticed Obed-Edom, this man that they decided to kind of temporarily store the ark there. He noticed that his house was blessed. So David sees that this ark of the covenant actually isn't a bad thing. Yeah, it might be a little bit dangerous, but it's a good thing. This, this ark is a, a place of blessing. So church, reflect today on people you know who've housed the presence of God well in their life and allow those blessed people 
Because that's what they are if you look at those people. Allow those blessed people to help motivate you to do like David. To say, you know what? They know how to worship, and they're obviously uh, having a very good time. Look at that. See, see those kind of worship. And church, once we do this, what we're going to find is that we're going to be a house filled with blessed Obed-Edoms and dancing Davids. We're going to have that kind of worship around here. And that's what I pray for. That is my prayer for you, church. Now, some of you are saying, okay, how though? How do I do this? How does a true uh, heart of worship happen? What's the, the formula? Well, here's the formula. It's motivated by the liberty of grace, and it's ordered by the law. Now, if you're writing and you're taking notes, this is really important to get this order down. It's motivated by the liberty of grace, and it's ordered by law. Maybe this analogy will help you. If worship is a boat, then grace is the propeller and law is the rudder, right? And you can't get those two mixed up. We aren't propelled by law, right? The direction doesn't propel us because the law is powerless to save. That's what we just confessed in the, uh, the assurance of part, that the law couldn't do anything, that God did what the law couldn't do. So grace acknowledges what God has done. It sees what God has done, and it motivates us towards worship. It's what pushes us off. So as we're pushed off, law, though, it guides that motivation. As we're driven forward, as we're going hard, law keeps us in line where we need to go. It is the rudder. So practically what this means is that different people are going to have different speeds of grace that they're running at in worship. Right? Some people are going to be running full throttle, and some people aren't going to be so fast. Now think about this. A church with grace at full throttle is highly motivated to worship. But as you know, the faster you go with grace, the more touchy that steering becomes. So try getting a church that's highly motivated by grace, all gospel, hardly any law, and then taking a hard right turn to the right on the steering with the rudder. What's going to happen? You're going to flip that boat. <laughs> you're going to be going super, super hard, and you're going to end up like David. Where did that come from? Right? Someone's going to get hurt. God's going to show you clearly that you were out of line. Right? So that's what that looks like. If you're going hard, full throttle with grace, and then you hit it hard with the law, that will sink your boat. Now, I don't say this actually to dampen anyone's desire to throttle grace to the full. That is the goal. I want you going with grace, pedal to the metal. I want it full throttle, balls to the wall. So my point is that worship takes skill, though. Worship takes skill. Some of you are smiling on your faces. By the way, that statement, balls to the wall, actually refers to – it's a nautical statement with uh, the, the balls. Okay, anyway. I just saw it on some of your faces. You're like, how inappropriate, how lewd. I'm using it in the right way, church. So my point there, anyway, was my, is that worship takes skill. Worship takes skill. And this is going to be offensive to some because when you say worship takes skill, you say, well, what about the unbeliever that comes right off the road? Can't they come and worship with us? And I want to say, yes, yes, they can come and worship with us, but it takes skill. right? The people that say uh, this, though, a lot of times they don't think about the biblical patterns for discipleship. Right? That's important too. Right? I want you to come, but I want you to come and worship according to the rule. And some people don't know that. They want to jump in and go graceful throttle, and then you hit them with a law, and they're like, what? What? Are you kidding me? Right? Th that happens though. So, so what I'm trying to do is give a balanced approach. The reality is, is there's some who are trying to gnaw on the stake of biblical worship, and they are not ready for it. They are not ready for it. Paul talks about this. They're gnawing on stake, and what they really need is a little bit of milk. 
Right, so I'm not just pulling this out of, out of nowhere. This isn't just my opinion. This is what the way Paul speaks about worship and being incorporated in the body of Christ. They don't have the teeth that it takes to digest the depths of the law that pertain to worship. They need to be trained. It takes skill. And if you give them a hard right turn, like David, they're going to be a little bit shocked. It's going to throw them off and their boat's going to flip. So we need to have a little bit of a tempered response with them. Come, disciple them. Show them how to worship. Show them what it looks like. So back to our boat analogy, the goal is actually to be mature worshipers who can throttle grace to the full with dancing and all while also having a sensitive hand that knows how to steer, right? Because a person that knows how to uh, drive a boat well, yeah, you want to say, yeah, it goes full throttle because you can go full throttle and you want to go full throttle, but you need to know how to do it. You need how to worship. You need to know how to worship without throwing yourself and your, uh, your passengers out of the boat. So that's what we want, church. Now, for some of you all, this makes sense, but uh, you still look back to the story of Uzzah, and you're feeling a little bit discouraged. You're like, but that guy died, right? If we don't do this right, we do flip the boat. We do get in trouble. And for that person that's still a little bit paralyzed by the law side, I want to encourage you with the gospel of Jesus from Hebrews. And it says this this morning. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest, that's referring to Jesus, Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest, notice this priestly language, who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now, there's a couple things that I want you to notice there. Firstly, that's the priestly language and also the confidence that we have to draw near to this throne of grace. Remember, I talked about grace throttling, how we need to do that. How do we approach that? So to the fearful, this is fantastic news because we see that Jesus, like David, emptied himself becoming like us. Right. He became like us. Even though he was king, even though he was way up there, he became like you and me. He sympathized with us. Right? That's what the text says. He, he was, uh, took on human flesh, and he sympathizes with our weakness. So if you're wondering, I'm weak. I don't know how to worship. Jesus is your great high priest. Jesus helps you worship. Remember, David set aside his kingly role in this procession and robed himself in the priestly garments like the vulgar fellows. We are the vulgar fellows, by the way, church. Right? We are the commoners. And this is what Jesus did for us in the incarnation. Isn't it? Philippians says it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Vain, vulgar, empty. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's what Philippians says. So when we come to Jesus in faith, we come to a priestly king. That king who was way up there, highly exalted, and looked down on us and said, I'm getting down there with him. I'm going to come, and I'm going to be with my people. So he set aside his kingly role to be our great high priest, to sympathize with us, to put on human flesh. So according to the rule and in freedom of joy, 
these two things they only sympathize or sorry they only synthesize in Jesus. Jesus is who brings these two sides of the coin together. The one who robed himself in human flesh like us and sympathizes with our needs. He indeed is our great high priest. And now he's exalted above every other name as the king who sits on the throne of grace. So he's like the greater David. He is the greater David. He's not just like him. Jesus is the greater David who took off the kingly robe to put on the priestly robe to become like us, to dance with us. So when we worship in faith, we worship in Jesus, the one who danced with humanity and lived according to the rule. In Jesus, our worship is perfect. You worship perfectly in Jesus. In Jesus, you know what else we do? We touch the ark. We get to touch the Ark of the Covenant when we come and worship in Jesus and we don't die. And why don't we die? Because that payment's already been paid, hasn't it? Because Jesus already died for us. Because Jesus is the, he hosts the complete presence of God. Do you know where the Ark of the Covenant is now? Me either. They don't know where it is. <laughs> but I do, tell, I do know where God hosts his presence. It's in Jesus Jesus hosts the presence of God, and he welcomes us to come to him, to come and touch him, to touch his wounds even. right? And when we come to Jesus and worship him, we worship perfectly. And as we do that, there's going to be people that look out their windows and see us, and they're like Michael's, and they're despising us. But that doesn't keep us from holding back our celebration. We're going to party. We're going to worship God because Jesus is with us in this house. The presence of God has come to be with us. God is Emmanuel in Jesus. Jesus is here, and we're going to worship him this morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you teach us, that you don't leave us where we are, Lord. You, you want to pour your grace out on us and see how good you are and how good we are not, and yet also you want to call us to be more like yourself. So you order our worship. You give us instruction, and you don't leave us how we were. You change us from one, to glory, one degree of glory to the next so that we might look like Jesus, so that we might be more like him. So, Lord, help this church. I'm going to pray for the next 203 years of this church as we worship you this morning and celebrate, dance, sing, shout all that we do. We want to do it to your glory. And, Lord, I pray that you would guard this church, keep it safe. Work on the hearts of the worshipers. Give us a true heart of worship as we come to give you glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.